Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm thrilled to welcome a filmmaker who brought shock back to the world of indie horror. A celebrated and talented photographer, she released her feature film Shock Attack in 2015 and quickly became a name to know in the world of queer horror. These days, she's busy at work with several new short projects, including Deprivation and Dark Hole, set to come your way soon. She's an amazing editor, writer, and director, and one of my faves to share a panel stage with. Please welcome Jacqueline Chessa. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. It's about time. I know. It's, it's, been, it's been a while. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. I, uh, you know, I, I had mentioned this before the show started, but you and I have done a number of panels together over the years, usually at Comic-Con. And uh, since the inception of Dead for Filth, I was always, you know, Jacqueline has to, to be on on the show. And we finally managed to make it work. And in fact, I think there was a joke going on uh, between text when we finally set the date. Yeah. You're like, oh, we found one. It yeah, worked. we finally found a date that works. Perfect. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, why don't we just kick the show off? I'm going to start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Like, what's your draw to the genre? Why do you think people in general like horror? But why horror? So I was thinking about this in two ways. One, you know, the more personal way and one the work way mm-hmm. and I think a part of why I was drawn to horror from the beginning some of my favorite movies were things like Return to Oz when I was a kid and like a lot of old Jim Henson stuff that's what I grew up with and if you watch that now it's like oh no wonder I was drawn to horror Return to Oz I don't know if you've watched it recently because I rewatched it again and it is one of the scariest kids movies and like that's in quotes because right. it's like the, the wheelers are terrifying. Uh, the the main witch lady, she takes off her head whenever she feels like wearing a, a different look. She pops off her head and takes someone else's. She has them all in glass cases. And it's just such a dark movie. But it was like one of my favorites. My sister and I loved it growing up. And I think that's part of what drew me. Drew me like I kind of opened my eyes in the beginning. Right. Um, but I've always been also terrified. I'm just a total chicken shit when it comes to, to horror stuff. It's funny because I saw uh, Return to Oz last year when the new Beverly did like an afternoon matinee of it. Oh, yeah. I saw and uh, what was really wild is, you know, I used to watch it a lot as a kid. It was like one of the same for me where there it was sort of an entry point movie where you don't realize you're being inundated with dark material until later. But the fact, you know, outside of the Hall of Heads and the Wheelers and that sort of like garish, like grotesquerie that's going on in Oz, the movie itself is sort of kickstarted by the fact that Auntie M and uh, Uncle whatever his name is don't really believe Dorothy is stories of Oz and they think she's like slid slid off her cracker uh-huh. and they put her in shock therapy yeah yeah and it's like what children's film is just they're they're like you've got this crazy doctor in this like high goth like mental institution and they ta- like strap down Feruza bulk on a table yeah. they're gonna like jolt her through electricity and they're like and this is for kids <laughs> yeah this is the perfect kids movie it's the perfect sequel to the you know the little wizard of oz film from before that was all magical and colorful and yeah you know if i'm not mistaken that film was directed by walter murch mm-hmm. who is uh notoriously a film editor and i think it's one of the only films he actually directed really i i haven't looked into that i want to look into that now yeah now i mean i'm sure because this is a podcast that goes out to the internet so if i'm wrong someone on the internet will tell me yes but uh you know i i and i want to cycle back around to your childhood connection but what i think is interesting is that was a film you gravitated to early on made by a very uh, notable editor and you yourself work as an editor uh, these days so. yeah yeah I yeah that is interesting I, I was really drawn to it um, and I do I do end up well I started out in I, I early, early on, right out of college, I was a publicist for a hot second. Um, but then once I got and transferred over into indie film, I started out as a script supervisor. So I definitely feel like sometimes I pay attention to different details when I'm watching movies. I try not to. You try to just escape into the movie. Right. But I, I definitely pay attention to more more different details that maybe you're not supposed to notice, you know, a lot of times, I think because of my roots as a filmmaker. You know what I do think is interesting with filmmakers and people who are really like in, indebted and ingrained in this world is there are kind of like two kinds of people who work in the world of film. It's people who like in their spare time just do nothing but go to movies and watch movies and then take it because it's almost like an addiction. And then there's those of us who are like with it so much that like we do kind of see behind the curtain. 
I do you find it harder sometimes to enjoy films because you know the the magic like I still love movies of course I do but sometimes like I was watching something at Outfest this weekend and I literally noticed that they changed film stock in the middle of a scene. <laughs> I, I like I saw it and I was like, oh, the film grain changed. And my friend's like, how would you notice that? I'm like, because it's my job. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, totally. And it's sort of like, but like, I don't want to be the person that fixates on that. But mm-hmm. I do like sometimes yeah. I do. Yeah, it's it's hard to shut off. I think you, you kind of learn to shut it off, but it can be very challenging to shut it off. But I do I do like when a movie can transport me and I do get lost in it. And I feel like it is almost a bigger feat to do that with some of the filmmakers out there because yeah, we notice all these little stupid things that we're we're supposed to do on a daily basis. But then when you go watch it, you don't want to notice those things. You want to get lost in this world. It just doesn't always happen. Exactly. So in your childhood, you gravitate towards these alleged children's films like Return to Oz. uh, And uh, what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, well, just, you know, like if you look at all those, all those movies when, you know, growing up that I was watching, it was like never ending story. Um, you know, it was, it was all the fantastical, it was, it was such a fantasy based world back then, but a lot of fantasy, even when it is for kids back then, they actually let the darkness kind of into now they always, they almost like whitewash it or they, they kind of like gloss over, you know, some of the parts of fantasy that can be so intriguing, even when you, when it is a kid's show, you know? No, it's true because you're right. All of those in a way feel like a primer for uh, genre, darker genre material because never ending story has the scene with the horse, which of course like devastated a generation of children. And or, then nothing. Uh, what was that? The, I, I love the wolf. I know. I always forget its name, but, yeah. but uh, my little, my little three legged dog looks like that wolf when she's like, you know, <laughs> yelling at my other dog. But yeah, I always forget the name of that dog. I need to, I need to remember that. Um, in, in the, there's just something, I, you know, you said something that I'm really fascinated by because I've noticed that too. It feels like content for children when we were growing up had uh, more teeth than it does now. It, yeah, I really feel like, um, I don't know if it's fear, parents, you know, just read too much on the internet or get too many, you know, there's so many different books and advice and everything all over the place now that, and everyone has such access to their audience now too, and take just sometimes too much feedback. And so I think with, with children's, you know, television in general, I think it's, it's maybe been hit the hardest a little yeah. bit because now everything, you know, if, if you do something that maybe the kids aren't supposed to watch or, or whatever it is. I think everyone's just afraid of that when they're making children's television now. Yeah. And the thing is, is I think kids are savvy. Like they yeah. know when you're talking down to them. Like when I was given material that I thought was pedantic as a little kid, obviously I didn't know the word pedantic at the time. <laughs> I would, I would sneak around and find the stuff that like I really wanted to see. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, you can water it down all you want, but kids are going to find a way. Oh, definitely. And it's so much better to find it through the the children's programming. Like even back Nickelodeon back in the day used to be so amazing because it didn't shy away from some of the adult humor. The kids aren't going to get it then. They're going to no. look back older and, you know, as an adult and, and say, oh, oh, now I see what that joke meant. But, you know, like it's kind of it was built in so the parents could kind of watch with their kids, too. You're not just. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I tend to like uh, cartoons even now. That's my favorite uh, thing to just kind of watch when I mentally want to unwind because there's still content there that I'm just like, this is great. There's some amazing ones out right now. Yeah. Uh, So um, you're watching these dark fantasy movies as a kid. Do you recall the moment where like you transition from like the children's fantasy into the world of horror where you're like, oh, this is a thing that I'm really into? Um, I've just always been intrigued by it and um, but terrified, like I said before. So uh, I remember, I think one of the first movies I watched uh, actual horror movies and sat down to watch was Arachnophobia at a sleepover party and um, scared the crap out of me. but and then it was like slow. It was I, I always kind of challenged myself to to face my fears. And I think right. that's how I kind of found a love for it, because I was always intrigued by it, always drawn to it. And then, you know, it was The Exorcist next. And then it took me a few years to get to some of the other ones. And and back then, too, you would see horror movies on television um, because there was nothing else to You know, you couldn't find 50 million other channels and, and find something else to watch. So um so yeah, just always intrigued. And then I, I just through several different ways, always somehow gravitate and end up in horror. So as a filmmaker, I worked, I think, on one indie film and the very next one was The Hamiltons with the Butcher Brothers. 
Oh my God. That's and so right. that was like one of my first movies I worked on. And I worked with those guys a couple of times. I love, I love them so much. Um, and so that kind of brought me into the horror world and filmmaking mm -hmm. and script supervisor. I'm sitting right next to the directors and able to see their process and what they're doing. And, and you know, that's part of why I chose that job. I, I wanted to be able to watch everything. And that's kind of your job. Right. So what I'm really interested in is the notion that uh, and this this seems to be a thread with a lot of people who ended up leaning into the genre is that early on a, uh, a lot of us were scaredy cats. Like you said, you were afraid. <laughs> Still but, <am. laughs> but then there's something about wanting to conquer that and understand that fear. And, uh, you know, the show is all about sort of the intersection of queer identity and horror. Do you think for you there is a relationship between queerness and that kind of like delving into the world of what maybe uh, makes us afraid? Um, I'm I'm sure there is. I mean, I know that um, liking horror movies in general oftentimes puts you it's a little bit better now, but especially, you know, back a while ago, if you liked horror movies, it was like half of the people you talked to horror movies, you know, talked horror movies with they would, you know, they would be like, oh, my God, you like those movies? Why do you like those movies? And then, you know, the other half maybe are like, yeah, that movie's so great. But right. especially, I think, being a woman, too, oftentimes people are surprised and shocked if you like dark anything mm -hmm. um, or if you like horror movies. Again, I think it's expanding out and growing a little bit more now. But back then, um, it did kind of put you in a, in a separate category in a way. Is there a resistance as a female fan of genre? Has that been your experience growing up as someone interested in this? Uh, yeah, I mean, early on now I've kind of surrounded myself with people who I, I have a, a, you know, a, a group of women who love genre film and, and always, you know, kind of surround myself with them. And once you start meeting them, you see them at all the different events and you start feeling more comfortable. But uh, but yeah, definitely early on it was I think also because I don't look like someone, right, who would enjoy horror films, horror films necessarily, you know, um, that that, you know, people are either shocked by it or put off by it or, or whatever it is. It's always that question of like, how do you like those movies? Those right. movies? Oh, my God. You know, does that give you like a little bit of like a, oh, yeah. a thrill? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love I love when. I love uh, when people misjudge me and I also love, you know, kind of just breaking the rules and, and doing right. whatever I'm not supposed to do. That's well, there is something I think ultimately really delicious about the genre because in and of itself, it, it is a genre that thrives on subversion. So when I, I think especially people, queer identifying people, but anyone who, who feels other, there's something sort of like, yeah, I do like it, what, you know, <laughs> yeah. because in a way we understand it, you know, uh, but, you know, it's just it's just punk rock to, to fight. It back. really yeah. it really is. And it's a lot of fun. And as a filmmaker, you really get to mess with your audience like a right. lot, a lot more than any other genre, I feel like. So um, so it's just a lot of fun, you know, horror movies in general. And those are the ones I'm really drawn to typically are just the really like fun ones, the goofy ones, the campy ones. You know, I still love my blood and guts and everything, but it has to be done the right way, you know, um, but yeah, it's just it's a ton of fun and you get to kind of challenge people whether they know it or not. So when you were growing up and you're watching these movies and you're eventually like dipping your foot in and conquering your fear, what was the moment that you realized, you know, I am more than just a fan of these. Like, I want to make movies and I want to work in this world. Like, did you have a moment where you made that decision? Were you always interested in working in film? Uh, yes, I, I was definitely always interested in working in film. I, I did it responsibly. I, you know, had my backup career with the communications major, which is how I started off as a publicist. But um, I've always wanted to make films. And, and once I started seeing people do the horror movies, because it can be a little mysterious, even for filmmakers now, even with all the access to all the information and videos, there's so much logistically that goes into horror movies that it does feel like, oh, that's so much. I don't know if I, you know, if I can... I need I need to know more or I need more people who know what they're doing or, or whatever it is. But um, I tend to just kind of dive into the deep end. And um, when the very first script that I wrote, which was actually deprivation, like 15 years, 10, 15 years ago, I can't remember. It was when I first moved to L.A. Um, it was like kind of the first draft of it. And it was just a really dark film. And it was kind of how I was feeling when I first got here, you know, lonely LA is just such a lonely place, even though you're surrounded by people much different than like being in a city or something right. um, like San Francisco. 
But um, now, are you originally from the Bay Area? Do I, I actually I was born in Culver City. Oh, okay. But I grew up in Northern California, so I grew up in Cupertino and uh, lived in San Francisco. I went to school at Sonoma State, so I'm kind of Northern California girl for a long time, and then mm-hmm. came back came came back down. And what I don't think people who are listeners outside of the state of California understand is that even though the Bay Area, San Francisco, uh, Oakland, San Jose, and Los Angeles are in the same state, it's a world of cultural difference. Oh yeah, big time, big time. Even even in the filmmaking world, because I basically started out in film up there uh-huh. and then eventually moved down here. And it's the crews and everything is just completely different. It's night and day. So you started making films in San Francisco working as a publicist? That was... Actually, the, the publicity job was down here. Um, it was for Miramax back in the day. It oh. was for one of their um, award campaigns. And um, I was working with a publicity team. We did like the screenings and premieres. And um, it was back when Chicago, Gangs in New York, like all, we had a bunch of those movies. There was like 10 or 12 that we were that we were doing back in the day. But um, But yeah, I, I stuck around for a season and then... Decided I, I really wanted to work on set. I really wanted to make the movies, not necessarily just publicize them after the fact. Right. So explain to me a little bit about that trajectory. You moved to L.A., you wrote Deprivation. Is that like running parallel to when you were working as a publicist? And then you were just like, no, I want to. No, it was actually a little bit after. So it was after seeing some filmmakers work and being on on, mm-hmm. on a few sets. And it was when I came to, because I came down to LA briefly for that, moved back up north and then came back down again. And that was, I've been here ever since. Um, and I don't remember how long ago that was right now, but that was this, that second move, that real move where I was actually living here in my own place that, right. that I, I wrote Deprivation. And that's when you made the full stop decision. Like, this is what I'm going to try and get into. But you took a while to to get to the director's chair. So talk yeah. to me a little bit about that trajectory. You write Deprivation. Obviously, your mind's in the place. I'm going to write movies. I'm going to make movies. Where? What, what's the process? What, walk me through the career oh, from that it, point. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, so first of all, I'm a Gemini. And so I feel like my two selves, I, one of them's creative maybe, and one's, you know, really good with like business logistics, script supervising stuff. So when I first started out, I was going kind of in, in that route. I was a script supervisor, really quickly jumped to production manager right? Um, and was kind of on that more producing route. But, um, but always knew I wanted to do the creative, but I was just trying to learn as much as possible on set before I made that leap to director. Mm-hmm. Because I just wanted, you know, once you go over to the creative side, it's so different than all the the technical, you know, the rest of it. So I was kind of on that path and then made the leap over to director. I, I had written Deprivation and wanted to maybe just play with it and shoot, shoot it on my own just to kind of try things out, which is kind of the first version of it. Um, but then once... I, I'm trying to remember now. I was in distribution for a second too. I've been all over the place. You're a true Renaissance woman. I really, I'm all over the place. Um, And seeing the movies coming across the table of of the company I was working with, it was just like, oh well, I can make B movie, B horror movies like this. I can make it cheaper and I can make it better. And that thus Shock Attack was born. It was almost like a dare. She was like, okay, well go ahead. I'll you know if you make it, I'll sell it. So I was like, okay. Uh, now I guess I'm making a feature. Um, and so that was the first time I, re- I wrote a feature film. It was the first time really directing. Um, it was the first, it was a lot of firsts for me. It was a huge learning curve uh, making that film. Yeah, you really sort of just jumped in. Like like you said, you like to jump into the deep <laughs> end because when I was looking across uh, your resume, your your filmography before the start of the show, I, you know, the you start with a feature and yeah. and it's like, that's that's a lot to take on. It was. But I like that you were sort of inspired by the challenge of B-movies. Mm-hmm. And you spoke earlier a little bit about how you're inspired and enjoy kind of the campy and the fun horror. Uh, so once you knew you were going to make a feature and, and you said, you know, I could do that, you know, like the, and that's how Shock Attack was born. But tell me a little bit about Shock Attack. Tell me about how you arrived at the idea and explain a little bit to listeners uh, what what the, that feature is. So um, I decided because I knew creature features, first of all, they're just fun, but also knew I didn't need to have big names or anything. The creature is the big name when it's that. Right. So that's what landed me on that kind of genre um, of horror movie. And then I so I was like, well, I need some kind of really cool creature and I want something ideally that hasn't been done a ton before. So um, 
I was watching River Monsters, I think. And they were talking about this. There was this episode where there were electric eels and these these cowboys went into this pond and they couldn't figure out how somehow they just disappeared under the water. There was no struggle. There was nothing. They just literally disappeared under well, the water. The, the cowboys did. Yeah, they, okay. they went they went into this. I forget why they went in. But basically, because of the electric eel, they were testing, t- testing it out, thinking it was an electric eel and that maybe it could just stop the heart. And that's basically what happened. It stopped the heart and they just went under the water with no struggle. Well, now so was, I'm scared I to know, go right? in any like, I don't <laughs> like going into water that's not a swimming pool, by the way. Like if I'm going to be honest about myself, like I, I want to know what's there. Yeah. I yeah. want to be able to see the bottom. I know the dark, the dark bottom pools are the worst because yeah. you never know. It still looks like something could be there. Yeah. Exactly. No, thank you. Yeah. I think that's why I think that's why we're, you know, why um, horror movies are so fun, too, because my mind always plays the what if game already. Mm-hmm. And so and I, that's how I scare the crap out of myself constantly. But that's also where the ideas come from. So anyway, so I, I decided on a killer electric eel. And of course, I wanted it to be big, huge mutant Um And from there, built the rest of the script around. So that's what I tend to do right now while I'm working with lower budgets, because Shock Attack really was made for only five thousand dollars. Which is kind of crazy when you think about creature features are not always easy to make in big money circumstances. So talk to me a little bit about the challenge of bringing a movie to life for $5,000. So I, you know, done my homework, been, you know, studying on set forever. And um, as a production manager, knew that sometimes it was cheaper to just buy the equipment rather than rent and knew that, you know, there were certain things where you should spend the money and you shouldn't. And so I bought, you know, kind of the bare bones kit that I needed. Um, I had a friend who happened, I, whenever I write a script, I try to be a writer and not produce or direct yet. I try to play that role and then I do the rest later so I can always change the script later. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I ended up doing was writing this crazy movie with like three boats. One of them's a big houseboat. Uh, the eel like jumps out of the water and you know, like all this stuff. And I just went big and it just so happened that my friend had all three of the boats that I pretty much described in the script because, you know, he just, that's one of, he, when he has money, he loves buying boats, his toys. So he had him and he's like, I would love to make a movie. That sounds like so much fun. You can totally use my boats. It was just, everything was lining up with that movie. So I was, I knew I was on the right path and that tends to happen, you know. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the beginner's luck of finding someone who's just like, I I have boats. If I went to try and find a boat for a movie, I probably wouldn't even be able to find one. And you found three. I found three. And they were up. It was um, my friend from Northern California. So he was up there. So we ended up shooting out on the Delta, Mm -hmm. kind of uh, past the East Bay a little bit, um, which I heard... um, one of my friends watched or it was like a friend of a friend watched the movie. And now because the Delta is kind of this mysterious river anyway, they're like afraid to go in the water now because they're like, I could see that creature living down there for sure. You know, like, oh, my God. So your movie inspired some real fear. Like there are people who uh, are afraid of your electric eel. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my or God. something like it. Yeah. You're you are the nouveau indie version of people not wanting to go into the water because like Jaws. Yeah. Stay away from those creepy rivers because you never know what's under there. I'm I mean, you can't see the water, you know, like yeah. or you can't see underneath. You don't know how big it is. It's it was actually pretty creepy being out there. And we actually tried to go. Um, we ended up with a CG monster, but we tried to build one. Mm-hmm. So somewhere out there, I think it's still somewhere is a giant eel puppet thing. But we couldn't I, I we made it too big and we couldn't get it to sink into the water at all. So it just ended up not working and we had to. That's why we had to go with CG like after the fact, um, which on a water movie is ridiculous because you it was just tricky. Right. Um, but we when we went out trying to shoot the big puppet eel, we had it across the big houseboat. That's how big it was. It like spanned the width of the boat. And people like fishermen were like looking at it like we actually caught something massive in these waters. <laughs> like people really are. They, they're not they're not surprised that there's something crazy, you know, in those in that river. Uh, I love the idea of a community of people that are like, sure, but I'm also afraid of a community that's just <laughs> like, absolutely. Like I could see that. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, people like to talk about the safety bubble of, of the coastal cities. But if there are towns where people are like, absolutely, there's a 17 foot electric eel that's waiting to kill us. <laughs> we are totally buying that notion. Good. Yeah. Gonna- we don't need to necessarily yeah. visit there all the time. Yeah hang out in Studio City and go to a cafe. (laughs) (laughs) 
So um, then, you know, you make this feature film, $5,000, creature feature. I am curious where that puppet is. It's out in the world somewhere. I, it might be at my friend's house still or, or something. I, I would imagine it's still out there somewhere knowing him, but I, I need a check. I haven't asked him. <laughs> uh, and then you took it on the festival circuit, right? So Shock Attack, because of the way it kind of came about, uh, we just started distributing it. So mm. it didn't even go on the festival circuit. I never even tried to put it out there by, it was kind of what I was told to do. Like, let's just go sell it. Right. So um, it made it out to some international territories. Um, and it was, it was on a, in a couple spots here. I'm actually in transition right now. The contract, it's about the time that the contract's up. So I'm trying to figure out where to kind of put it next. Right. So it went internationally as well. Yeah. Have yeah. you, have you gotten outside of like the people in the town and their, their phobia of a giant eels? What's, what's the feedback? Like, have you heard from people who have seen the film? Um, I, not, not like, uh, just like friends of friends and stuff like that. Otherwise I haven't really seen feedback or heard feedback. I don't, I stay away from comments constantly, especially oh, yeah. I feel like, you know, with, um, with anything like this, it was just a fun movie. It was supposed to be campy, but not shot campy, you know, right. like one of those where you take yourself seriously, but it's ridiculous. Right. Um, but yeah, early on, I learned to stay away from the comments. Cause even though I know they're, they're stupid anyway. It's just, it's just better to stay away from that stuff. So, um, so I haven't gotten a lot of feedback from people outside of that just because I kind of block out all feedback, you know? Right. One thing I wanted to cycle back around and ask you about, uh, cause you know, earlier I, I talked about sort of that, you know, cause comments this is like, this literally is born out of, uh, you know, the notion of the toxicity of the internet, how people kind of talk about fandom, you know, you can't be a fan of this cause you're a woman or like women can't love horror or like blah, 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 Star Wars, this, that, and that. But, uh, you know, and you're out there proving, proving them wrong and kicking ass and taking names. Uh, so we talked about the fandom side of things and you discussed your trajectory in, in the world of filmmaking, how you had been a publicist then worked as a script supervisor and you were on sets uh, until you were finally spurred on to make your own feature film. And one of the events that you and I frequently see each other at uh, every year is the Etheria Film Night, which is all about the celebration of women and genre. And one of the prevailing narratives is just sort of the struggles that female filmmakers have. And uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit uh, because your voice is so strong and you're out there, uh, you know, kicking butt. Of course, you know, there there's the preconceived notion of like what kind of people like horror movies. But were there challenges for you as a woman in industry uh, just kind of getting out there and doing your. Yeah, I mean, definitely um, early on, you know, when I when I was first working on sets, I was typically the only female on set mm -hmm. um, on crew unless there was an actor that day or something, which is actually how I got a couple of my act, acting credits is I was just the only woman on set. Someone, you know, didn't show up and they were like, crap, we need a. A lady get in there. I think it was it. The I think it was the Hamiltons. I'm in the very end. Oh, actually, yeah? I love am that I? movie. By I the think way, I am. I need Wait, to was it the Hamilton? Yeah. I need to go back and watch it. Yeah, I need to rewatch it too. It's been a while, but yeah, I, I really do love what what those guys make. Mitch and Phil, they they make some really good stuff. Even still, I, I've seen some of their stuff, but um, but yeah. So early on, it was definitely difficult, and it got better as time went on. And obviously, like on my sets, I make a big effort to to make sure I have you know, a lot of women on set whenever possible. Um, and it, it does feel like it's getting better, but then, you know, like I just went to Cinegear and half of the, the dudes at the stands won't talk to me because I'm a woman. They're just talking to my friend who's a male DP next to me. You know, they're just talking straight to him. Even when I asked. Right. So it's like, we're, we're making strides and it's, it's getting better, but you know, it still goes a long way. And I think oftentimes from like the camera department aspect and even like, you know, post-production mm -hmm. people forget how difficult it can be and challenging for women on those ends. So right. yeah, we're, we're seeing more progress with the directors and, and the producers and everything, but it can be really challenging as a female in the camera department or, you know, in post-production because you're not, it's not always as diverse, you know, that and it's so wild to me because, you know, I'll, I, I know a lot of the guys in the world of gear, they themselves have never actually made a film, but mm -hmm. you have. Yeah. And they're still not talking to you. That's yeah, got to yeah, be yeah. infinitely frustrating. But especially at a show like that, you know, where I, I was really taking note of the companies who were paying attention and who were welcoming right from right. the get go. Um, but yeah, it, it can be frustrating, really. Mm -hmm. it, it was really frustrating that day because you're just sitting there like, is anyone else watching this? And, and I talked to a few other female 
filmmakers who who went to sh- that show specifically and it was the same thing for them you know certain certain stands just like they just didn't even know how to talk to a woman who like cameras what oh my god you know it's awful i was a co-producer on a project uh in the f- in the s- spring and the entire crew uh was f- female driven which i was amazing uh but like we would go places and i would be like the only like it was the only only male member of crew uh and i'd be like hanging out and like the people who like location people would be like well how are you gonna do this shot i'm like i'm I'm not the cinematographer i don't know yeah (laughs) don't talk to me ask her she's got better credits than i do (laughs) (laughs) so it is i just i don't understand you know yeah it's so frustrating uh, tell me about, I was looking at your IMDb and I want to know about Sayaka reports. <laughs> so, um, I've played around in, in the, um, YouTube space a little bit lately. I've, I've uh, one of my projects coming up is a web series. I'm, you know, going to just, I did dark holes in the festival circuit now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a long process that I just kind of want to start putting some, I, I want to like almost change it up so every you know maybe while something's in a festival then I'm putting something else online right um so Sayaka Reports was kind of me playing with with that medium um and my friend Sayaka who is quite the character and an amazing actress uh we we both love RuPaul's Drag Race and we decided to start just doing a recap show um but during that process I realized how difficult that is because you literally have to time it right with the actor or the whoever's hosting it and you only have a week turnaround to shoot it you know to to edit it and to put it out as fast as you can before that next episode airs right so it was definitely a learning experience in that but we just had a ton of fun and you know we both loved the show and we just thought it'd be fun to to do a little recap And speaking of your love of RuPaul's Drag Race, I understand based on something you told me that it's sort of uh, you came to it uh, maybe begrudgingly at first. And now there's a little bit of a family uh, appreciation connection. Yeah, my my youngest sister loves the show. She's the one who actually got me to start watching it, who... If I remember correctly, I think that kind of spurred like then Sayaka started watching it and a few of our other friends. It kind of it's it's kind of cool because it made its way around. And it was all because my sister was like, you need to start watching it, you know, mm-hmm. give it a chance. And so um, and the only reason I didn't at first is because some of those really dramatic, you know, reality shows I typically stay away from now. But um, but then I realized what it actually was and, and really started appreciating it. Um, I've always loved drag itself. I just wasn't sure about, you know just some of the drama that came with it. But then I, it's just such a fun show and it's so well done. So I just, I love watching it. Well, I think it's sort of a parody really when you think about it, yeah. there's a call, there's a, everything's heightened. It makes fun of reality TV mm-hmm. while being reality TV. Yeah. It's like the drag version of reality TV in yeah. more than one way. And one of those ways is really pointing the finger at, at the culture and like, look at, you know, look at where the culture is and what they're watching and what they're doing right now, you know, as a whole. Now, you mentioned uh, that while you were putting together Sayaka Reports, you have a short on the festival circuit right now, uh, Dark Hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about that project and uh, a little bit about what's going on with that. So Dark Hole was one of those where I, I get, you know, I, I have a lot of my own equipment and I just get antsy, especially after editing a lot. And I'm, I'll just get in the mood where I want to shoot something. So I have a group of friends or I'll, you know, kind of blast my Facebook friends or, or whatever it is and say, hey, who wants to go? just make something fun. Mm -hmm. And Dark Hole was one of those. And we came up with the concept. I just really wanted to play with tension and do some practical effects. And um, we just had a lot of fun. It's the short's been at a few horror festivals and is still kind of making its rounds right now. Um, But yeah, we just played around with a lot of practical effects, which I always love. And, you know, I I can do the visual effects, but it's always fun to be able to do the practical stuff. Was there ever a point uh, where you thought yourself might be you might be interested in doing effects work or do you always? Yeah, I mean, I again, I'm kind of a Jacqueline of all trades. You know, <laughs> see what I did there? Um, Is that on the business card? <laughs> it's on my Twitter. My That's my Twitter handle thing, whatever <laughs> you call it. Um, but yeah, I so I do actually 
especially nowadays, editors kind of need to know how to do a little bit of everything. So whenever I am editing, um, oftentimes I will dive in and do some of the visual effects work. I recently just helped uh, do visual effects on a, on a short horror film for someone else as well. So um, that was one of those other things that I had to learn how to do visual effects during Shock Attack because when you do something low budget or very, you know, no budget, whatever it is, oftentimes, you know, people have to take their they're paying gigs first or, you know, or you will get kind of those flaky people, even when you when you have the money, honestly, it's hard to rely on people. So I've always wanted to have all the knowledge. So I at least know what's supposed to be happening and what's going on Uh, with Shock Attack. I had to jump in and help with the visual effects because we did have people that weren't always following through. So um, I learned I learned After Effects during during Shock Attack as well. Uh, something that you said while you were discussing uh, your your understanding of, of practical effects was how you looked at it with an editor's eye. And I'm very fascinated uh, by your work as an editor because I think that when you work as an editor, you do have sort of a different way of processing how a film is made. And do you bring that to, you know, obviously you mentioned it with effects wise, but do you have that in mind sometimes when you're on set, like the, the editorial process? Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's kind of the handy tool that I can whip out whenever I need to, um, is, is you, you kind of, you're sort of taking notes in your head like a script supervisor would without it's hard because you want to live as a director. If that's, you know, if, if I'm a director, that's where I want to live in that world. And ideally, other people are doing the other jobs, right. but it's also nice to know that because you're able to think, okay, well, uh, we lost this location. What can I do? Well, I know I can cut this in and do this and do that. Like you'll, you'll see those directors who kind of have those technical tools right. and it's really handy, even if you're not a technical person to understand it. Um, I've had people sit in with me before to watch as I edit, just so they kind of understand, you know, what's going on, even as actors that, they can see like, oh, I, un- I understand now why sometimes these decisions are made and it's not it's not because of anything I did. This is just like the bigger the, the whole project needed this or, or whatever it is. So, yeah, it can be really handy to, to have that. But I try not to I try not to be an editor on set. Like I really do try to put on whatever hat you know, I'm wearing at the time and not let the other the other stuff get in the way. Well, and editors tend to be, in my mind, some of the unsung heroes of Hollywood because they're the last artists to oh, ever yeah. look at a film. And they can totally change the whole film. I mean, even it can make bad editing can make an actor look like a bad actor. You know, like the editing job is so important. Well, and with that in mind, because it's a question I don't usually get to ask, but, you know, there are some really notable editors out in the world. Uh, Sally Menke comes to mind. Uh, But do you have any editor uh, heroes or there editors that you really admire or like that are out working or who have been part of film history? Um, the, The big one that comes to mind, I... I, I was fortunate enough to meet Thelma Schoonmaker, I believe is how you say her name, early on. She's the one who does Marty Scorsese, like all of his films, um, or a lot of them. And um, it was kind of really great seeing a woman in that role who you didn't often, especially higher up studio films, see women in the in that role, in the editing role. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's been doing it for a long time. And, and just hearing her speak about it, and it was... It was just really cool. And she definitely, I think, influenced me early on. What I think is really cool, especially because I've always known that Scorsese uh, uses a female editor and up until her passing, so did Tarantino. And these movie, these filmmakers who are so traditionally identified as sort of like the machismo, Uh like kind of like intense, like male action. What I don't know that their their core audience maybe realizes is that the last person who curated that sort of badass imagery was a badass lady. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's. I wonder if there's something to that. Do do women make better action editors? Interesting. I yeah. I mean, I think in general there are different points of views that obviously every crew member has. Yeah. And that can bring a lot to a project, and you just need to know what it can bring and how to utilize it. And I do think oftentimes what we are missing when we don't have you know like a diverse crew or. A, you know, diversity on set in general is you're missing all those different point of views. It's, it's a collaborative process and a collaborative art. And if you don't have those point of views to bring, bring it in, then it's kind of just, you know, like one sided, it's not as rich and deep and, you know, as, as as there's not as much brought to it as there could be. 
Hmm, food for thought. Yes. Uh, so Dark Hole is out on the festival circuit, but at the same time, you just recently completed another short, Deprivation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Deprivation's in post. In post. In post-production. Um, and there's a lot of effects and stuff, and I don't want to say too much. It'll ruin stuff. But um, so it's taking a long time in post-production because I'm really, it's kind of my baby. So mm-hmm. like this is sort of the second version of it where I... I bumped everything up, had the tools and had, had what I needed to make it. Um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm taking my time with that one. Oftentimes I kind of just rush into things and and I'm like, let's just make it and put it out there and it'll be so much fun. And, and with this one, I'm definitely taking my time and really, um, being, being careful. Well, like you said, you wrote it 15 years ago. Yeah, this one, this one's pretty personal. So I, it definitely, um, I'm letting myself take, take my time with it too. Um, I don't I don't want to rush this one and then regret not not giving it it, you know, what it needs. Well, it seems like it's also an emotional journey because you said when you wrote it, you were kind of like not feeling your best. And it was part like you, you have gone on this process where it was a thing that you created and all these other things have happened. What's it like to know that this piece that's sort of been with you in some way all this time is finally almost ready to, to share with people. It's it's a little scary and very exciting. So it's um, yeah, it's it's great because it is really close. Um, it, you know, there is a, a rough cut out there, and we are starting to play with the style and and everything because there's a lot to this one. Um, but it's exciting, and I, I really do want to kind of make sure I'm taking my time with it. But I am ready for it to kind of live out there and 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 move on from it. You know, because I was. I mean, you always bring personal stuff to your work, you know, as an artist. But with this one, it was so personal. It's like I was in such a different space when I wrote it that, you know, it kind of is time to almost like put that one out there and then just move on, you know. Do you feel like in a way you both recognize and don't recognize the person who created it because it was so long ago? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I you know, you go through so many different stages in life and I feel like in a way you do change constantly and and so as an artist the nice part and even even if you're not like a a professional artist I always encourage people to write or or paint or draw even if you suck at it because it's such a great tool to be able to just kind of put that out in the world even if nobody ever sees it and just kind of move on you know exactly so tell me a little bit speak it because you said uh you encourage people to go out and and take on something creative and we've been talking a little bit about as you said you're a Jacqueline of all trades all the different hats you wear one of the things I mentioned at the top of the show was that you're also a photographer I always see you running around taking pictures of things so tell me about your life in photography because I feel like uh, you don't get to talk about that a lot we've done panels and things together before we always talk about the filmmaking side but then I'll be at at events and you know you've got your camera and you're diligently (laughs) capturing it all so yeah I um, actually started out as a photographer before picking up a video camera. Um, I learned photography back when we still used a dark room. Uh, that's <laughs> how long ago it was. And I've just always loved photography. I was drawn to it at a young age. Um, I had my parents' old like Nikomat camera that I would run around with. And um, I still love it. I still, you know, I, I think it's nice to be able to jump around to different jobs. I think it keeps everything interesting. Um, so, you know, like the other night I was at my friend, uh, his CD release party and I, I shot some band photos for them and, you know, it, it's just all over the place. I was uh, a travel writer for a hot second too, and, um, would also do travel photography and, you know, uh, was out there doing that for a while. So yeah, my photography, it's something that's just kind of the through line, I feel like for me. And I really do love it. And still photography, I assume, also helps really inf- inform your filmmaking as oh, well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the composition, you know, really um, knowing composition and even like learning on a manual camera with film, you really truly understand a lot more about exposure. And, and it it was great to transfer that knowledge over to, to my video work. So you mentioned, because I didn't know you did travel writing. Uh, what I like every time we talk is I learn something about <laughs> your career, you know, a, a publicist, an editor, you know, d- d- foot and special effects, photography, filmmaker, you know, director, writer, all of these things. What's something that you've done that people would be surprised to know or like something that uh, is not something you get to talk about as frequently? Oh, um, well, when I was younger, I was a roller hockey player. 
Really? Yeah, that one's fun. And I actually started out, though, when I was super young, I was, uh, you know, like what they do, the figure skating on, on ice skates. I did that on roller skates when I was a kid. What, so there's competitive roller skating. Competitive roller skating. It's not as big now. A lot of the rinks have gone. But um, but yeah, I grew up as a competitive roller skater, uh, artistic roller skater, and uh, quit when I was about 13 and then switched over to roller hockey when I was about 15 and did that for a while. Do you ever uh, just strap on skates and go... I, I did um, a few years back, but they were ice skates and I'm not as solid on ice skates, but it was fun. It remind it reminded me that it's just it's not going to go away because I think when I was so young when I was roller skating that it just now I can I can probably skate better than I can walk, honestly. That's that's <laughs> interesting. I uh, when I was a little kid, I was uh, growing up in Colorado, where, of course, there's a lot of snow um, and we would do uh we they would just flood a little portion of the playground if you wanted to roller skate. Oh, that's so funny. Which I feel like is such a late 80s thing yeah. to do. Like they would never do that for kids now yeah. because there would be like lawsuits aplenty. Yeah, right. Yeah. The liability would be awful. But yeah, I, I'm I still I think about actually strapping on my rollerblades to um, I'm like, I'd be like a human dolly. It'd be great. I could put my camera on and put my skates on and roll around and get all kinds of great little shots. I mean, honestly, you want to talk about some ingenuity on set like if you want like a, a, a movement shot you could pull a full Sam Raimi on rollerblades. Oh yeah yeah I could do all kinds of stuff with that yeah and I again because I can skate so well the camera would be nice and safe. Well you'd have to convince whoever well you own your own equipment so yeah, yeah, yeah. there you go. I, sometimes I shoot with a you know like sometimes we'll rent or it's other people's equipment but yeah yeah if it's mine then it doesn't matter I can risk it. <laughs> Well, one of the places that we tend to see each other a lot is different conventions, uh, and we've done a lot of panels together. Uh, you are the most returning guest on my panel at San Diego Comic-Con. That's such an honor. Uh, so you're a, a VIP uh, in the world of queer horror panelists, uh, and we're also doing a panel together at uh, Midsummer Scream at Long Beach. Yeah, I'm excited. We actually get to be on a panel together because you're usually moderating. So No, it's true. I guess of all of these years, I've interviewed you so many times, but you've probably never actually heard uh, someone interview me unless you know you're in, in yeah like randomly around but we, yeah. we've never sat at the same table you know yeah uh, and being able to be interviewed at the same time or whatever our panels like you know? yeah I'm excited no and it's always been so wonderful uh, being at these events for you would you enjoy like I mean obviously you enjoy going to these events uh, because of the, the community like mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's it's there's something well there's a bunch of different reasons why um, comic-con's gotten so big sometimes I question like should I go back again but there's just something to the energy at these events um, mm -hmm. that are like all the artistic energy that's out there um, it's usually just a really welcoming community no matter what convention I'm at because I've gone to so many different ones but it's always just fun and welcoming and it's like it's like this happy little bubble you know for the weekend or for for however long the convention lasts right. and it's it's just yeah it's just a bunch of like it's just usually a love fest at these things it's true and for like as stressful and crazy as it can be uh -huh. and it is yeah there's also that thing where it's like once you land there that's your life for the next five days yeah, yeah. and so you live like in an insulated community I remember you know rushing from the panel last year and uh finally eating for the first time that day. <laughs> right. Remember we sat at the Hilton and had sandwiches and I was yeah. just like, oh my God. Uh, but it, it, but there was something joyous. Like we had just done something awesome, at least to us. You yeah. know, so. And you, and you get to meet so many different people too at these right. different conventions. So it's, you know, it's always important to get out there and, and meet people and support, you know, I always try to support, you right. know, different groups. Like we were talking about Etheria, you know, I haven't actually had a film at their film festival, but I always try to go support, you know, any of their events and stuff like that. Um, but, but yeah, it's just important to kind of get out there and, you know, I network and, and meet people and, and you get to, you get to meet a lot of good friends that way too. Well, because you so frequently engage with the community, uh, whether it be the queer community or the genre community or the fan community, and you have been given a platform to speak at a lot of these events, uh, I want to ask you here on your podcast appearance, is there any advice that you would like to offer people who are embarking on a creative life? Um, make sure you love it because it's not easy. Um, but then if you do, just don't give up. You need to put in the hard work. You need to put in the hours. If you're not working on something, then you do need to go out to these events and start meeting people and, and, you know, shaking hands and supporting, you know, make sure you're supporting whatever it is that you're, you're wanting to do too, because then that'll come 
back at you, you know, and it's also just the right thing to do. But, um, but yeah, just really putting in the hard work. It's not being in any kind of artistic field is not an easy thing to do. So if you truly do love it and you want to do it, you need to just, you know, really keep going at it until you succeed and don't be afraid to just jump in. That's true. And uh, speaking of, what are you jumping into next? What's what's next on oh, the horizon for you? Um, speaking of camera work, I'm going to be DP on an LGBT series called Passage, which is actually crowdfunding right now. And we're going to be shooting in October, um, which I'm really excited about that. And then uh, I have, besides Dark Hole and Deprivation, I also have a web series coming up called POV. And that is, we have the first episode filmed and we're in pre-production for the rest. It's a horror anthology, so it's going to be really fun. I'm almost taking more of like a showrunner um, kind of, I, I'm like working with different writers and I'm thinking about having different directors on for each episode too. And right. So it's been really fun kind of exploring that. Tell me about the challenges of that. Is that uh, because you are so used to pretty much doing everything yourself you you like you know all of these projects we've talked about you've worn multiple hats on all of them mm-hmm. and when you're a showrunner you sort of have to let go a yeah, little bit and go. delegate yeah. is that difficult for you um so far it hasn't been it's been great I think if you pick the right people to collaborate with and they see the vision then they just bring something extra the, to the table so mm-hmm. I do end up working and doing a lot of stuff myself but it's mostly out of need right now. I love working with people. I love the collaborative element of film filmmaking. Um, and so that's something I've been missing. And that's kind of why I decided to start bringing other people in to, to write the different episodes. And, and that's why, even though, you know, it'd be easy for me to direct them all. I think it'd be fun to bring in different people to direct and, you know, you get to just bring more eyes into it and more creativity into it. And it's just more fun. And so earlier I asked you about uh, something about you that people didn't know. And you just uh, also referenced, you know, you're, you're doing show running gig, uh, which is a new hat that you're wearing in addition to all the many other hats. So sort of a different variation of, of the question of like, what have you done that people don't know about? Um, what haven't you done that you would like to do? Um, that's a tough question. Because I tend to just go do it if I want to do it. But um, I think something I've been antsy for lately is going going and um, being able to do my next feature. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm definitely have a couple of scripts that are in development and I'm trying to figure out which one I'm going to do next. Um, but that's kind of doing that and also being able to sort of slow down and, and maybe try to do it the, you know, quote unquote right way. But, you know, like just try to slow down and take my time and, and really try to get all the tools together and get an, you know, a nice big crew together and, and just get a bunch of people on it and um, open it up a little. Right. No killer reels this time. Well, I, you know, I do have a sequel in mind. <laughs> oh, there's a, sh- there's a shock attack too. In the I don't know. Maybe. I mean, that's not the next one, but I definitely have the opening scene and it, it's a good one. I'll tell you it to you later. <laughs> well, I can't wait. Uh, speaking of movies, what have you seen recently that inspires you or that you love? You know, I've been going back to some of the old, well, not old, well, I've been going back to some of the old classics, like, I, you know, I just rewatched, um, some of the real classic movies, but, um, but lately I've been drawn to comedy horror a lot because okay. I think I'm just kind of wanting something fun and light and, you know, um, so I rewatched what we do in the shadows recently so and I, I just love that one so much it's so good um I was having a lot of fun with Ash versus Evil Dead I'm really sad that series is over but that was such a fun series I think that show was really impeccable because it got the balance of comedy and horror yeah. right and I you know I hate to get on a soapbox and do a little PSA here but the reason Ash versus Evil Dead is not getting a new season is because of piracy and piracy is something that affects people who, uh, are, you know, are across the, the world, but especially across the, the film world, but is especially damaging to indie filmmakers like us. Yeah. Uh, and if ever you want an example of how it can harm something, Ash vs. Evil Dead is a example because that's something that was on a, a major cable platform. Yeah. And uh, the, the online feedback, knowing via Twitter that there was a huge viewership for it, but people weren't watching it on stars. They were just downloading it after it aired. But yeah. like the network wasn't making money, so they couldn't keep producing the show. That show literally got canceled because people weren't paying for it. Yeah. You yeah. need to support your artists. Yeah, because definitely support. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, if a show like that can't make it because you're stealing it, Certainly people in the, the indie sphere 
like us are not going to be able to keep making movies if people keep stay, taking stuff. So that's just me yelling <laughs> and waving a finger, even though you can't see it because it's audio. Uh, just support your artists. Yeah, I think people forget. They, you know, they just want to see something and and they, you know, they're just excited. And, you know, they, they forget that if you go download something and you're not paying that ticket price or you're not watching it as the show's airing or whatever it is, they forget that that does actually harm people. You know, before I feel like it just harmed the big corporate studios. So people just didn't really care. But now right. the way that films are made and the way music's made and the way art is made, it's different. And it actually can directly affect, you know, uh, the people who are making it. Absolutely. And look, we get it. Now more than ever, there are so many platforms and so many places to get content that it's difficult to decide and you can't see everything. But then just be judicious mm -hmm. in yeah. what you choose and what you, because if you don't support the things you're watching, soon there will be nothing to support at all. <laughs> yeah. Or you're just going to get trash. Yeah, it's just going to be crap. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, you heard us complaining about sitting and watching stuff that, like, you know, we pick apart. We want to see the things that transport us. Yes, definitely. And that one was just so much fun. You just got to dive back into the Evil Dead world, which I've always loved. And it, it was a blast to watch that show. You know what I've always loved about Evil Dead is how there's such a mania to it. Yeah. It's just so, you know... I, I, and also this idiot like that's what the thing that's like so great like Bruce Campbell plays Ash to such a perfect degree because you kind of hate him uh -huh. but you kind of love him because how has this guy survived and there's a truth to that like in the real world it sometimes is the like the asshole who gets out yeah. Oh, um, but I wanted to ask because you said you've been revisiting kind of the the combination of comedy and horror. Do you think there is a kinship between comedy and horror? Oh, definitely. I think um, one of the we were talking about fear earlier and, and all those different emotions. That's as an artist and as a filmmaker, that's what you're trying to do is make people feel something. Right. And I think oftentimes people think, oh, well, that's a drama. Right. You want to make people cry or whatever it is. But fear and laughter are like the most powerful things. And they really do go they're, you know, they're close cousins. They go like right. hand in hand. So I think that's why comedy horror can do so well. And that's why even when it's not a comedy horror film, um, that's why camp and everything else has always worked in the horror genre in general, I think, because it really is there, you know, when you laughing and being afraid, you know, like a lot of times you walk through a, a haunted house, you get the crap scared out of you. But then right after you're laughing. Yeah, I always laugh in haunted houses. Oh, yeah. It's like a nervous laugh usually. But yeah. Right. But well, I think there's something too, like the shock of the absurdity of it all, because I think that when you use the word absurd, people sometimes just think it's it's comedic. But uh -huh. absurdity is anything heightened. Yeah. And I, I don't know, like, you know, there's just something about even straight horror movies that aren't necessarily made comedically. Mm -hmm. I find myself really amused sometimes. Yeah. Because when you're presented something so beyond garish. You have to kind of laugh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of the time it's in a ridiculous world. I mean, there's there's obviously those kind of really reality-based horror movies, but I tend to go to the more ridiculous ones. It's right. just it's just really fun. I mean, I still like some of the the serious ones as well, but but yeah, usually it's some outlandish idea or some kind of crazy situation and it's it's just a blast usually to watch to watch horror movies. Well, since you mentioned two recent ones before we head off into the night, I have to ask, is there like to you a definitive comedic horror movie that's just like your all? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm seriously loving what we do in the shadows right now because I love the mockumentary style, too. So mm -hmm. it was just so well done. Um what other com I'm, I'm blanking out right now, but um, but I obviously love Shaun of the Dead. That, that one's so good. And Edgar Wright is so good. Um, but yeah, those are I'm just I'm just loving all those. I just revisited Young Frankenstein recently. Oh, and so uh, good. Yeah, that one's amazing. Uh, Jacqueline, where can people find you? Um, I am on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, my handle is Jay Chesson for I think Facebook and the others are J-A-C Jack Chesson. Um, also, uh, you can go to my production company, To and Fro. It's to-enfro.com. Mm -hmm. um, that website is there, and I'm trying to update it as we speak. Uh, and yeah, that's that. And then 
the POV web series is going to be super fun. So definitely uh, watch out for that because it's it's going to be a fun one. You said that's crowdfunding now? Uh, oh, that was Passage. So okay. Passage is crowdfunding now. That's the one I'm DPing on. And then the one uh, POV is the web series. And I'm definitely throwing in a bunch of queer characters as much as possible into these stories. And, and that's the, the horror anthology series. And it's it's just going to be a lot of fun. Well, if you are out in the world, uh, in addition to checking out Jacqueline's films at film festivals and Shock Attack that you can watch, I believe, on VOD and places at home, uh, Jacqueline is hitting the festival circuit and convention circuit uh, in coming weeks. Uh, by the time this airs, she will have joined me at Comic-Con. And you can also see her in the live episode of Dead for Filth that uh, we did live at Comic-Con, where she, uh, Erlinger Torridson, and I sat down and had a good time. I hope we're recording this before we actually did it. <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be a blast. I have no doubt. And uh, yeah, just keep an eye out for this amazing artist. I always love sitting and talking to you. I love hearing what you're doing. And I love learning that you're like all these things I didn't know. Yeah, so. I'll just I'll keep things to keep surprising you. I'll yeah. just keep throwing random stuff out. Next time. Oh, and you know, though, I'm going to demand that next time we get together, you enter on roller skates. OK, yeah. I'll, I'll need to dig them out from whatever closet at my parents' house. But <laughs> <laughs> Jacqueline, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It was great. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. <laughs>